All right, welcome back. Hey, turn in your Bibles to First Chronicles chapter 21. That's where we're going to land tonight. We talk a lot about habits in our society, in the church, uh, just in general in our lives. We talk about our habits, both good and bad, all the time. Whether they be good habits that we're trying to start and continue on, or bad habits that we need to break. For example, I think I've mentioned it before, if you were to come up here and look really close, I've got no fingernails, the skin is pulled back, I just have this really bad habit that I need to break of chewing my fingernails. But we all know, and if I were to ask you, have a conversation with you and ask you, hey, what are two, three habits that you have that you want to break? I'm sure you could tell me, or if not, your spouse probably could. And then if I asked you, hey, what are some habits that you either are doing that are really great or that you'd like to start? You could probably easily come up with a list of two or three things um, for good, positive, constructive habits. And so tonight we're going to talk about that a little bit more, uh, but we're going to talk about our habits of sin. And so most of our sins, by our standards, are pretty small. When I watch the 10 o'clock news, I don't see a lot of Northsiders um, hitting the big bank robberies, doing the mass serial killings. And so by our definition, most of our sins are pretty small. We avoid the, the big whoppers, if you will. Usually our sins are, if you're like me, more smaller day-to-day violations, things done in secret, things done where I feel like there are not very many or no victims, sins that repeat themselves over and over, constantly popping up, sins that bore little holes in our souls that eventually uh, run the risk of bleeding out our faith and spiritual energy. If our faith was a house, these big sins, these whoppers, if you will, be like dynamite. They blow up the house in one tremendous bang, if you will. There's obvious destruction, seen by everybody. Little sins, more like termites, more like water damage, slowly eating through the inside out, causes slow damage, slow decay. Usually, they're not addressed until it's too late or until it becomes a very big, obvious situation. Either way, dynamites, termites, the house is destroyed. Paul, in Romans chapter 6, a verse that we're very, very familiar with, puts it this way, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice Paul doesn't clarify, hey, the big sins, the dynamite leads to death. He doesn't clarify or, or speak to either one, he just says sin, the wages of sin, is death. So my point is whether it's quote-unquote big sins or little ones, we must break this habit of sin in our lives if we want to grow in Christ, if we want to remain faithful to Him, if we want to spend eternity with Him. In Luke chapter 24, verse 46 and 47, Jesus says, And He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and the repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So we must turn, we must change our, both our minds and our conduct in regards to sin, all sin. This doesn't mean just being sorry for our sin. We understand this difference of just being sorry versus repentance, 
Repentance is breaking our habit of sin in our lives. In our lives, excuse me. I think Satan, one of his lies that he uses, a very pretty cruel one, but sometimes convincing one, is this lie that he gets us to believe that repentance means just getting rid of the big stuff, the obvious stuff, the dynamite, if you will, in our lives. But I think he knows that more houses are destroyed by termites than dynamite, and he's happy either way. David understood how important it was to break this habit of sin in his life. He saw firsthand how sin caused a lot of problems in his lives. We know the stories. And we're going to look at one from 1 Chronicles chapter 21 tonight and show how David breaks his habit of sin in his life. And hopefully we can kind of learn from this experience and, and help us break our, our sin cycle in our lives. So 1 Chronicles chapter 21, starting in verse 1, Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So David is tempted by Satan to conduct a census. Now, a census in and of itself, uh, not a sin. We see multiple times in the Old Testament uh, where God orders a census. In Exodus chapter 30, in verse 11 through 16, God commands a census to be taken over all the males over the age of 20 in Israel, uh, excluding the Levites, with the purpose of determining the ransom money uh, for the service of the tabernacle. And then you see again in Numbers 1 and 2, once again the Lord speaks to Moses and commands a census to be taken so they can get a roster, if you will, of all the fighting men in Israel. So the census in and of itself is not the sin. This time, the prompting uh, for the conducting of the census comes from Satan, as you see there in, in 1 Chronicles 21.1. doesn't say exactly why this was a sin in this particular case. Maybe it appealed uh, to, maybe as the motivation David did this was to increase his wealth through taxes. Maybe the motivation uh, was David wanted to take more territory than, than God had already granted him. Most likely, I think, uh, be somewhat of a, the pride boost. David wanted to uh, really establish and gratify his pride in the strength of this great army. Taking more faith in the power of his military, putting his trust there rather than the God who provided for him uh, in those times of war. And that's a constant theme you see in the book of, of Psalms as, as David writes. So note that Joab... David's advisor and and military commander recognizes the wrongs and warns the king uh, to no avail. So in verse 2, continuing on, he says, So David said to Joab and to the princes of the people, Go, number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan, and bring me word that I may know their number. Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. But my lord, the king, are they not all my lord's servants? Why does my Lord seek this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt to Israel? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. Joab, as we see as we continue on in verse 5, he couldn't even bring himself to provide a full count, so he skips over two of the tribes, uh, the tribes of Levi and Benjamin. Uh, continuing verses 5 through 7, it says, Joab gave the number of the census of all the people to David and all Israel 
in all Israel were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and Judah was 470,000 men who drew the sword. But he did not number Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. God was displeased with this thing, so he struck Israel. So the writer says God was displeased. He punished Israel because of the sins of the king. Note, uh, to kind of, just kind of a side note, that people suffer from the wrongdoings of the leaders. So as we you know, go into situations where we're voting, we're going into the voting booths, something to maybe keep in mind, uh, there are consequences that stem from that. But in the remainder of the chapter, we're going to look at and we're kind of going to outline David's response to God's judgment and then how in this response he strives to break this sin habit that has brought him to this point in his life and then kind of how his life looks after that. So I'm going to suggest to you four steps that we can learn from David to breaking this sin habit. First step is realization. Verse 8, David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing. But now, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. David acknowledges that what he has done is wrong, acknowledges what he's done is foolish, it's disobedient, and it's not just a mistake. You notice he doesn't give any excuses. He doesn't say, God, yeah, I did this, but you just you don't understand the, the pressures that are getting to me the pressure that it is to be king of, of this nation. He doesn't say, God, yeah, I, I, okay, I messed up, but I'm just really scared of these foreign armies. They're big and they're bad, and I just wanted to get a count here. He doesn't give an excuse. He doesn't say, hey, nobody's perfect. Cut me some slack. He doesn't give the argument to God that this sin really isn't that big of a deal. Nobody was really hurt because of this. He owns up to it. He admits it's wrong, it's foolish, and it's disobedient. The fact is that if it is against God's will, it's a sin. And if it's a sin, God hates it, no matter if we define it as big, small, or inconsequential. Psalm chapter 5, verse 4 says, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, in wickedness no evil dwells with you. God cannot tolerate even the slightest bit of sin. If God hates it, I think we would be good to get rid of it. So this first step of realization is difficult for us. It's difficult for most Christians, if we're honest. Because that we know and we understand from a knowledge standpoint, we know that if something is sin, action is required of us. We have to follow through, do something about it. This is why I think, in, you know, if my, in my opinion, we, I see such a defensive stance or defense against the little sins or the vices. Things like immodest dress, consuming uh, explicit media, movies or TV, listening to music that we know isn't good for our souls, addiction to small things, or we think small things like gambling, alcohol, sexual activity between unmarried people, little sins that we just kind of write off like gossip or laziness, stubbornness, dishonesty about things like cheating on homework, lying about... Small things for financial gain. Revenge, petty cruelty, selfishness, the list goes on and on. We have all kinds of excuses, all kinds of defense mechanisms to protect our little sins from having to be dealt with. 
think it's amazing that we'll believe things from the pulpit, things really big, things like doctrine, the meaning of a Greek word, about things about the plan of salvation, marriage counseling methods, but we won't. I mean, I might have said something that kind of made you think, hey, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. And we won't, when we hear things that call out our sin, we, like David, ignore, like David ignored Joab's warning, we kind of ignore that when we hear it from the pulpit as well. We refuse to accept uh, what we know is warned against. And because of this, our termites have run the risk of causing our house to pay the price. When David was finally judged, notice he took the first and necessary step, I'll suggest tonight, in breaking this habit of sin. He realized what he was doing was a sin, admitted it, and had to deal with it as such. Second step is repentance. Continuing in verse, uh, still in First Chronicles chapter 21, and starting again in verse 9. The Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and speak to David, saying, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things, choose for yourself one of them, which I will do to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, take for yourself either three years of famine or three months to be swept away before your foes while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, even pestilence in the land, and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all... I hope that was a cowboy's touchdown. Uh, of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now, therefore, consider what answer I shall return to him who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So God offers David three choices as punishment for his sins. Three years of famine, or three months of foreign armies attacking, or three, day, or, yeah, three days of pestilence, disease in the land that the Lord will send. And so we see David chooses these three days of disease sent by God on the nation of Israel. So what does he give as his reasoning for that? If you look there, he chooses, like I said, the three days of disease, of pestilence in the land, because he would rather suffer the consequences in the hands of God rather than from nature or from uh, the hands of men, the hands of his enemies. By this choice, I think he shows that he is prepared to uh, face God and to trust him regardless of the circumstance. He could have prepared for a famine like Joseph did. He could have uh, fought the best he could against an army with his own. But he chose to put his life and fate completely in the hands of God. So his sin, as we read about in verse 1 there, was not trusting in God. And the repentance was not just suffering the consequences of it. The repentance was change. David went back to trusting God. So in our own attempts and efforts, and, and as we battle with our sin, as we strive and, and hope to change this habit of sin in our lives, it requires repentance and change. Not excusing the sin, but getting rid of it. Not loving the sin, but hating it. Not being afraid of, of what life looks like without this sin that we've gotten used to, but trusting that God will fill that void where the sin used to be with something much better. 
So we will never break our sin habit until we're ready to ask God to change any part of us, any habit that we have, and ask him to replace it with something better, something clean, something godly. Step three is, that we see from David here is restitution. Continue in verse 14. It says, So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel. 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. <clears throat> Excuse me. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw and was sorry over the calamity and said to the destroying angel, It is enough. Now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Then David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven with his drawn sword in his hand stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, covered with sackcloth, fell on their faces. David said to God, it is, is it not I who demanded to count the people? Indeed, I am the one who has sinned and done very wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? O Lord, my God, please let me, your hand be against me and my father's household, but not against your people, that they should be plagued. David's repentance opened his eyes to the true nature and extent of his sins, the destruction of lives. This realization moved him to this next step, to this important step in breaking the sin habit, moved him to this desire to do something about it, and the need to make restitution of some kind. He didn't want his sin, to hurt other people. He offered himself as a sacrifice to stop the punishment, to appease God in some way. I think we can learn from this as an important step in breaking this sin habit for several reasons. One, the restitution is a demonstration that, um, in this case as David or whoever it is, the person truly understands the seriousness and evil of their sins. Sinners who actively fight against former sins or try to make up for them, shows and proves sincerity. I think restitution shows where a person stands in regard to their sincerity. We hear stories, and I think some of the most powerful testimonies that we hear are from those that were once caught up in this, what, you know, whatever the sin is, this world of sin and evil, and speak actively out against it and its destruction. And then restitution prepares us for the last and most necessary, I think, step in breaking the sin habit. Well, sometimes we see people get to this point of restitution and never go further. They become advocates, they write books, build hospitals, whatever it may be. But David goes one step further. That last step is restoration. Uh, picking it back up in verse 18. Then the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornad the Jebusite. So David went up at the word of Gad, which he spoke in the name of the Lord. Jump down to verse 26. Uh, then David built an altar to the Lord there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And he called to the Lord and he answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of burnt offering. The Lord commanded the angel, and he put his sword back in his sheath. Notice that when David was, offer, was wanting to offer himself, when he realized that his sin was worth his life, God restores him. God restored him to have fellowship once again. 
This idea of building an altar and offering sacrifices demonstrates that God and David, or that David and God, I should say, in that order, were once again at peace. God allowed David to uh, offer an animal instead of himself as a peace offering to bring about reconciliation. Until we understand that it is sin, big or little by our definitions, but it's sin that causes our separation from God and eventually it would be our ultimate destruction. Until we understand that, we will not feel the need to be reconciled to God. When we remain ignorant or when we continue going on in sin, continue going thinking that God will not require an accounting for every sin in our lives, When we continue in this path, we will not feel the need to be reconciled to God. However, when we see the destruction of our sin, similar to how David saw the destruction of his, then we begin to desire to make things right with God, make things right with those uh, we have sinned against, make things right with God. And then we, like David, uh, want to offer that sacrifice, maybe not in the same way, but offer some sort of peace offering, something that would take away the sin, something that would take away the guilt, something that would take away this fear that we have uh, that that prevents us from, uh, that stands between us and God. And this is where the power of the cross is, Um, so powerful and so humbling. This is when God sends Jesus to our rescue. Because it won't be by our understanding, and it won't be by our repentance of sin and our efforts and us doing enough good that restores us. It won't be our active efforts to combat sin. It won't be our active efforts to combat the effects uh, that would remove our guilt. It won't be our own personal sacrifice or death that will take away our condemnation. We can't make restitution to pay for our debt. It will be the death of Christ on the cross that will pay the debt that we owe for our sins. It will be the death of Christ on the cross that cleanses our conscience of guilt, removes our fear of punishment, that makes us at peace with God. And it will be the death of Christ on the cross that guarantees our eternity with him in heaven. David offered an animal. God's big picture plan was to send a perfect sacrifice that would remove all sin for everyone and break this sin habit once and for all. And so to close, we can see if, if you continue on, you'll see a really neat thing happen from this point on in David's life. It was kind of a turning point. Because after this event, he turns his attention to preparing the resources and preparing his son to build a magnificent temple for the Lord. It's almost as if he went from this focus and this need to build his own kingdom that switched his focus to then building the desire to build God's kingdom. I think that's what happens in our lives when we break this sin habit. So we begin by realizing where, what our sins really are. And we accept them, own up to them, respond, or we realize the trouble that we're in because as a result of our sins. We move from realizing to repentance, and repentance that includes a willingness 
an effort at real change. A change that we're committed to regardless of the cost, regardless of the pain or the inconvenience that it might cause. A change that we're committed to regardless of the degree of self-denial that it will require. And then repentance leads us to this desire for restitution, the desire to make things right, desire to do the right thing, desire to be hungry, be thirsty for righteousness. A thirst that will draw us to the only one who can provide restoration, only one who can satisfy that spiritual dryness, if you will. Talking on Wednesdays, once again, sorry, you'll have to hear from me again on Wednesday. But we've been talking on Wednesdays about the I Am statements in the book of John. Jesus being the one, being the living water. That's where our restitution leads us to the living water, to the bread of life, to the I Am. Our desire to be right with God will open our eyes and hearts to the need to believe in Jesus and be baptized in His name and be at peace with God once and for all. So as I close, I'll just leave you with a couple questions to think about and then I'll pray and uh, we can get out of here and watch the Cowboys win. But I ask you tonight, what kind of sinner are you? And I ask myself this question too. What kind of sinner are you? Because we're all sinners. What kind are you? Do you have a sin habit that needs to be broken? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come freely, worship you, uh, to read uh, from your word. And Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity to learn from your servant David. Lord, thank you for his example. Lord, we know just like us, he was a sinner. Um, But Lord, we just thank you so much for your plan of redemption for him, for us, and for all sinners. Lord, we admit that we are sinners. We uh, fall on our face and confess our sins to you. Lord, we don't want to continue in this habit of sin, so help us follow um, an example of David. Lord, help us to um, break that habit. Lord, we know that true restoration is only going to be found in your Son. Thank you so much for that, that gift of sending him the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Lord, we love you so much, and it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.